This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today we're going to return to a subject that I've been diving into from time to time, wealth and what we make of it in times like these. I've been looking at that subject from a lot of different angles, talking to a range of different people, including economists, wouldn't want to leave them out. I was especially interested in getting an economist's definition of wealth. I had a hard time defining it myself and thought they would have a pretty straightforward technical answer, maybe a very short conversation indeed. But as it happens, wealth is a tricky and elusive concept even for economists, at least the ones I've spoken to. It turns out asking about it opens up all kinds of interesting questions about value, societal priorities, the economic system at large, and even the very nature of economics as a field. Well, on this show, I thought I'd share one of those conversations with you, this one with Russ Roberts, a professor of economics at George Mason University. We had a very interesting talk, starting with wealth and moving on to other subjects. I learned a lot. I hope you will, too. That's coming right up. A couple of months ago, I was speaking to the financial journalist Robert Frank. He writes a column called The Wealth Report for the Wall Street Journal about the world of the very rich. And we were talking about what happens to the wealthy in a depressed economy like this one. And he said the following. In this crisis, we actually are seeing a lot of wealth be destroyed. Now, that caught my attention because I've been hearing phrases like that a lot during the past year. For example... In an event like we're seeing now, there's uh, huge wealth destruction. That, coincidentally, is another Robert Frank, a professor of economics at Cornell University, and no relation to the Wall Street Journal Robert Frank. But anyway, all that talk of wealth destruction sounded pretty weird to me. Maybe because I tend to think of the economy as like the physical universe, and in the physical universe, the balance sheet stays balanced. You know, the first law of thermodynamics and all that. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So it seemed to me that the same should be true for wealth. I mean, in this recession, nobody has been shredding money or tearing down factories or depleting all our natural resources. No, none of those basic ingredients of the economy has gone missing. So where then did the wealth go? Well, plainly, there's some things I don't understand about wealth, at least not from an economics perspective. So I took my questions to one of the better economics explainers I know, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. Uh, as an econ uh, doofus, um, when I start hearing these terms that are especially um, widely used these days about the destruction of wealth, mm-hmm. uh, it immediately raises a question in my mind. Um, I kind of thought that the total wealth in a system you know, if if wealth is based on things like uh, the labor force and on capital in the form of equipment and factories and infrastructure and knowledge and then also, uh, you know, money, actual currency and things like that, um, all those things have pretty much remained the same from those days before the recession started till now. And yet, supposedly, uh, aggregate wealth has shrunk. Now, does how does that make sense? Isn't wealth conserved. Um, Let me ask you, first of all, does that question even make sense to someone who's been studying economics as long as you have? Uh, 
Uh, I think it's a good question, and I think it confuses a lot of people, probably including some economists, and it's not an easy thing to talk about clearly. Uh, first, you're mixing up some stuff that we ought to keep separate. Uh, when you talk about wealth, our everyday use of the word uh, has a wider range of meaning than the economics jargon. So when you talk about our knowledge, that is a source of our well-being. It is a great asset um, but we don't usually think about measuring it and uh, thinking about accumulating it and, and converting it into a dollar figure, which is usually what we mean by wealth when we're talking about sure, sure. the let's, jargon sense. Let's get that so a lot out of, of what equation. you're talking about are assets. Uh, we have factories. We have natural resources. We have knowledge. We have a phenomenal, usually, uh, system of rules and laws that help us make contracts and deal with each other and keep our promises, et cetera. And we have a great culture, by the way. And in some sense, that's, a, that's part of our wealth. But when people talk about our wealth being destroyed, what they're talking about, of course, is the dollar value of some of our assets that have been typically denominated in dollar terms, because that's how we keep score. Mm-hmm. And um, those have gone down a great deal. So the value of our house the value of our retirement plan, et cetera. Those have gone down in dollar terms, in measured terms. And so in some sense, we are less wealthy than we were. And I think the source of the confusion particularly comes into play in the stock market. The stock market at its peak was almost twice as high as it is right now. Um, so are we half as wealthy in terms of our savings and our assets? And the reason that's confusing is that the stock market is a funny place, and we don't think about it much. We think about it when it's just sort of ticking along, going up a little bit here or there, going down a little bit here or there. We occasionally look at our balances and say, hey, we're doing okay, or we're up a little bit, or we might be down a little bit. When it changes in this amount, we're forced to think clearly about what it actually is. What the stock market is is an attempt to predict what the future will be. So if the future suddenly is perceived to be less rosy, it's going to mean that the value of the stocks that we have in our portfolio are going to go down. And as a result, that signal, that piece of information is is real. It's saying the future is less rosy than we thought it was. Now, are we poorer? Well, we are in the sense that we could have cashed out at that higher rate. But if that higher rate was artificially rosy, if we Mm -hmm. overstated what we thought our future economic prosperity was going to be, it's really not so horrible that it readjusts downward. What's horrible is it readjusts this far downward. (laughs) This is what's been painful. It's one thing to say, well, we overstated how much our house was worth. For those of us who bought our house 5, 10, 15 years ago, we've had a, a wonderful run. It's come down some. We've given back some of the gains we thought we had if we haven't sold during that time period. And we say, well, I guess my house isn't as worth as much as I thought it was. If you bought a house last year, that's not your perspective. If you bought a house last year, you say, well, uh, I've lost money, and that would be a true statement. Um, and, of course, those of us who have seen our houses rise in value and then come down, we have lost paper profits, but we still might be far ahead of where we started. So it's a little different perspective. Right. Um, but I want to get back to this concept of, of aggregate or, or total value, which mm-hmm. is really how we measure wealth, in just a moment. But one amateur observation on the stock market, I often hear that it is uh, a guess on the part of investors as to the future of the economy. 
I've often thought of it differently as a guess on the part of investors as to the future behavior of other investors. Uh, what they're really betting on is whether other people will be getting out or into certain stocks. And therefore, it's a little weirder and a little more complex than some bellwether of the economy, don't you think? Yeah, it is. But l- let me let me put a footnote to your your first statement. It's really a bellwether about the future of the corporate profits in, that are to come, mm-hmm. not the economy uh, itself. A lot of the economy is not traded on the stock market. A lot of our lives are not <laughs> traded on the stock market. It's really important to keep that in mind. Yes, we might have individual stakes in it as investors or retirees or future retirees, but the goal in life is not to make the stock market go up as much as possible. The goal in life is to enjoy life to its fullest. That includes sometimes making money in the stock market. It might include sometimes corporate America not doing very well because maybe that's the right policy. So I think you have to make that distinction. But your point, your second point is that there's a speculative element in the stock market. And let's let's go back again. I think it's easier to see it with housing. If I think housing is going to go up because housing is more valuable, then housing is a good investment. Right. But housing can be a good investment even if it's not more valuable. That's just right. Everybody else thinks it's more valuable. Exactly right. And that's the animal spirits, uh, herd mentality. The problem with that, that's true in the very short run. It's true over uh, – it could be true tomorrow. It could be true for a week. It could be true even for a few years. It's very difficult for markets to reflect inaccurate information over longer periods. So, mm-hmm. for again, the housing market being a great example or the stock market in 2000, 2001. You think about the stock market in 2000, 2001, there were a lot of stocks that were racing up possibly because people thought – other people would think they were going to race up and they were buying them. Right. The speculative motive. Yes. It's also possible they were racing up because no one was quite sure which stocks were going to be successful, which Internet companies would thrive. There was a lot of uncertainty. It was a new world. And so those are sort of the two ways of looking at a sudden price increase. It could be speculative bubble. It could be it's difficult. There's not complete information ever. And in new products, new times, technological change like the Internet – there's a lot of uncertainty, and so people are putting lots of bets down, not sure which ones are going to pay off. Okay, well then, um, it eventually comes down. It uh, doesn't last forever. You can't ride out that speculative bubble and keep it going. It eventually pops, if that's the ultimate reason. If it's just that people think it's going to keep up and other investors are going to invest. So in the short run, one way to, to summarize that that observation here is just to say, well, at any one point in time, there can be over or under confidence in the actual uh, over pessimism or under over optimism about the actual value of of the companies on the stock market, because we're not sure if there's a speculative role going on. But over longer periods of time, those speculative roles tend to wash out. And the stock market is a pretty accurate reflector of, of real underlying fundamentals. So, interestingly, even if the motive remains speculative on the part of, I mean, theoretically speaking, on the part of the majority of investors, still over time, speculation will resolve into a kind of genuine uh, bet on the actual financial condition of various companies in future. Because if, because if the market is purely speculative and there isn't the underlying fundamentals to support those prices, 
they can't stay high. Right. They do come down. Right. Well, let's return to the question of wealth. And and a uh, basic definition of wealth would be the, the valuation of our assets, uh, mm-hmm. correct? And, uh-huh. At market prices, usually. And that sounds good, except when we look closely at this notion of, of value, um, it itself is kind of a slippery and relative yep. concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about total wealth in a system going up or down, we say total value has gone up or down. There again, um, this economics uh, weenie uh, has has a basic question. If all values go down, haven't re- couldn't relative values remain the same and therefore essentially everything is unchanged? Um, you know, value is simply relative. I mean, whether I say a dollar buys this or, or it takes $10 to buy this, it doesn't matter if um, the amount of cash changes accordingly, you know? Um, well, you're, you're onto something that's, that is important, and, but I think there's still an underlying uh, reality that, that you're missing. Let's start with what's important. Okay. Um, I am worried, as, as many economists are, that we're going to have inflation in the next few years. The Federal Reserve has injected uh, billions of dollars into the banking system. The banking system is currently sitting on it because they're skittish and, fe- and fearful and cautious, and so they're not really doing much with that money except earning a very low rate of interest uh, from either the Fed uh, in the form of the reserves they hold or by buying treasuries with the, that money. But as people get more confident and as things return to some level of normalcy at some point in the future, they're going to take that money, they're going to lend it out, and all that money that the Fed has put in the banking system will come into the hands of investors and borrowers and consumers, and that will push up the level of prices. That's what inflation is. Mm-hmm. If that happens, the dollar value of our assets, many of our assets, will go up for no other reason than that the yardstick we used to measure, called the dollar, will have changed, and the dollar prices associated with the stuff we have will have gone up. Right. To, to take a silly example, um, if we have 100% inflation, which would be extremely depressing and unlikely, but if we did, your used car, the car you're driving, might appreciate dramatically in dollar terms. Right. But you really wouldn't be wealthier, would you? Um, <laughs> that would not be true wealth. That would be paper wealth. And how would we distinguish between real wealth and paper wealth? Well, we would deflate. We would take our nominal dollar measure of wealth and try to put it in real terms. The way we do that in economics, we use some sort of deflator, some sort of price index to say, well, today in 2009, say, I have this amount of dollar value of of my assets, and let's go ahead five years to 2014, and I have a different dollar value, and let's say there's been enormous inflation between now and 2014, so the dollar value of my wealth would have increased dramatically. But what it could purchase could have gone down, even though it would be measured as much greater. If that is the case, I'm not wealthier. I'm actually poorer. Right. And that's why we always want to correct for inflation when we compare dollar values of wealth over time. Uh, Having said that, uh, if your real wealth goes up, if either the stock market or the value of your house or your car or your knowledge or all those other assets you have, if you did put them into dollar values and you decided they had gone up and gone up by more than prices had increased, then you'd say you're wealthier, and that would be true. Right. So, again, value has to do with, with relative measures. And uh, purchasing power uh, is, a, is a measure of, you know, whatever um, liquid assets you have relative to the price of things. Correct. Um, that's very important. 
Now, if in this uh, scenario we've talked about where wealth is either increased or or, or destroyed, um, if everything went up proportionally or down proportionally, then things would remain the same. If prices, labor, all of that um, changed proportionally, then everything would remain in the same relationship. But what you're saying is that in the wealth creation scenario, some things get more valuable relative to other things, the things we want to buy. In the wealth destruction scenario, our ability to buy goes down relative to the price of, of certain things. So I guess the real question is, why does the price of things not adjust accordingly? Uh, why, do, why do things get out of whack in such a way that we can buy less or we can buy more? Well, it's not out of whack. Um, what it's measuring is the real changes in our economic system and how they get translated into our lives. Mm-hmm. And if we look at it over a broader time period, I think we can see that. Let's, let's take a, uh, a huge time period, say, today versus a century ago. And you hear this all the time. You know, people say, "Well, my salary's really high," and your great grandfather say, "Yeah, but when I was a boy, you could get a soda for a penny." <laughs> oh, wow! I guess that's a that's a mixed bag. Then I have a higher salary, but expensive Coke, uh, etc. And of course, they'll pick other different examples. So, when you're talking to your great grandfather, you want to you want to try to correct correctly for the average level of prices, or at least the level of prices of the stuff that you enjoy. And when you make a comparison over 100 years, you, you do have a problem, which is that the quality of things has changed also, which makes it very difficult. But let's put that to the side and just look at this fundamental issue you're raising about relative prices and relative value. Our incomes for the average person in America are dramatically higher today than they were 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But so are the prices of stuff we want to buy. So you got to correct for that. When you do correct for that, you find it's not a wash. In fact, our standard of living, our command of goods and services, what an hour of the average worker's labor can buy is dramatically higher. And I think you're thinking, well, well, wait a minute. But if wages are higher, don't I want to put that into the price index? And the answer is you don't. That You said some things go up more than others. Right, that's correct. But some of the things that go up you don't put into the price index to do the, the deflating. When incomes, say, go up or wages go up, uh, by a factor of 10, and prices go up by a factor of 5, that's a real difference. That that means that you can buy a lot more stuff than you could have bought before, and it doesn't cancel out. It's not just like, well, some things are gone up a lot, and on average it washes out. It doesn't wash out. The stuff that's gone up, our assets in, the, in our earlier story, or the value of our labor in the case of this story, that's kept. you want to keep that separate from the value of prices. True, it is a price in the sense that it's something that a, a factory, a manager, a company, an employer has to pay for an hour of your time, but you don't want to weight that in with the higher price of the goods you enjoy. You want to keep them separate and compare the two. Okay, so now it, let, me, let me jump in, Russ, because I think you, you've um, described an interesting uh, scenario that may, might hit at something fundamental. <laughs> you said if wages go up more than prices go up, and the question there is, hey, wages, labor is is a cost. How did wages go up without prices uh, going up proportionally? And I want to say yeah. secret ingredient, productivity. That's right. That's exactly right. And that's another way of saying our standard of living has gone up or we're more prosperous. Because underlying that story, as you say, you have to ask, well, why did wages go up twice as fast as prices? Isn't, aren't wages an input into the production process? And how could that possibly be? How could wages double and prices only go up 
by 50%, say? And the answer is exactly what you said. It's productivity. And that's just another way of really saying our standard of living is higher. We're more productive. We get more stuff out of fewer raw material, less more raw material, be it labor, be it the literal natural resources we use in producing stuff, steel or paper or pencils or whatever it is. So that's exactly the key. We're more productive. Thanks to technology. Thanks to knowledge, technology, and also important uh, competition, uh-huh. which forces uh, the generators of technology, the creators, to share the fruits of their knowledge uh, more widely than they'd prefer. So if you, if you create a new product, you'd like to keep the profitability for that yourself. If you create a new machine, you'd like to keep the profits from that machine yourself. But generally, because you're not the only person working on that problem, you're forced through competition to charge a lower price than you'd like to charge. And similarly, the people who use the machines, who generate the productivity, would like to capture all that productivity in the form of profit. They can't. Competition among firms forces them to share it with consumers in the form of lower prices. It is not uh, fully appreciated or sufficiently appreciated, but compensation as as a proportion of total output is pretty rock steady at about 70%. Hmm. You'll sometimes hear people say that hmm. wages have been falling as a proportion of total of total output, mm-hmm. and to suggest that somehow corporations are getting more power relative to workers. But those statements always ignore benefits, the non-wage part of compensation. If you include all the costs of labor, if you include the total set of benefits that workers get, it's pretty much 70% for the last 60 years and hasn't changed um, much at all. And... Um, that's partly because corporations would wish it were different. They wish they could increase their profitability and lower wages, lower compensation, but they're not able to because of competition among them for workers. Interesting. Well, you just described a, a scenario in which uh, total wealth has gone up uh, due to those three things you just mentioned, uh, or the one thing, productivity, which in turn is based on three things, technology, knowledge, and competition. Now, in the reverse scenario where uh, where 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 wealth um, declines, we're not saying though that that's a result of those three ingredients diminishing. Uh, Correct. Right. Right. We haven't forgotten how to do stuff. That's right. not why we're a little bit poorer today. Right. It's important to remember we're not a lot much poorer today than we were in. Um, there's a, a an extra confusion we might mention, which is a difference between wealth and income. Wealth is at a point in time, how much stuff do you have? It's like you pile all your stuff into a big pile. You put a dollar value on each thing in the pile, and then you add up the whole number. And your wealth is is what's called a stock. It's a snapshot at a point in time with a dollar attached, number attached to it. Right. Your income is not a snapshot. Uh, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your income is how much you earn per time period, whether it's a week, your weekly salary, your hourly salary, your, typically we think of our income often in annual terms. And so our annual incomes have barely gone down uh, as a nation, right? Our total productivity as a nation has barely gone down, which is the way it's measured in the data is GDP, gross domestic product, that is, which is a, a time-based measure. Gross domestic product is how much do we produce a year, and so the amount, our annual product production of stuff, of goods and services, even though we're in a recession, it's gone down a little, little bit. Our wealth has gone down a lot, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. our paper-denominated wealth. 
And those are two different things. And, of course, we understand that uh, – and, and so to come back to your question, what's generating our income is our productivity and our knowledge and our skills and our creativity. And that hasn't changed at all, and the dollar value of it's only gone down by a little bit. Mm-hmm. It could continue to fall, though, and the reason it might fall is because we're not using our resources at their fullest level. That's what unemployment is telling us, that there are people who have skills and have knowledge and who aren't being employed because they need either to move to a different sector of the economy or they can't find the job that they think is a good fit or the employer can't find them or there are many, many other reasons. But the bottom line is we're not at our full income-producing capacity as a nation. But our wealth, it's gone down a lot uh, because the stock market has plummeted, and that can easily come back, we know, as confidence and other things return, in which case you wouldn't want to argue we've suddenly gotten a lot smarter or more productive. It's just that the dollar values we place on stuff have been readjusted through that process we talked about earlier, the stock market or speculation or other things. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm talking today to Russ Roberts, professor of economics at George Mason University. We're discussing the concept of wealth from an economist's point of view, what it is, how it's measured, and what's happening to it in the current recession. So when we described a situation where where real wealth, real purchasing power goes up, mm-hmm. we described a way in which um, uh, wages and or the value of assets goes up relative to the cost of things. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about wealth going down, I guess we're talking about a situation when either wages, and in this case you just said uh, wages really haven't gone down that much. Asset values. Asset values have gone down in relation to the cost of things. That's correct. So what is it in that scenario, that that negative scenario, that has um, caused the values to go down relative to the cost? In other words, what has right. caused the, 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 the this disjuncture between values and cost? Why hasn't cost gone down proportionally? Because the source of the wealth loss is a reassessment of what the future will hold for the companies that we're talking about. And when that get that reassessment takes place, uh, the dollar values attached to our shares of stock go, or our mutual funds goes down. And as a result, the dollar paper value of our of our wealth goes down, and the prices have changed hardly at all. Right, the and, underlying and, of the things that we enjoy, exactly. that we want to buy with that money, exactly. that we could buy with that money. And why haven't the prices changed? Why don't the prices go down to to fit the the lower demand? Because there's no, um, it's not what has the prices of the stocks have gone down. What hasn't yeah. gone down are the prices of the goods and services we want to use when we decide to convert those pieces of paper into purchasing power by selling them. Exactly right. When they're not, when they're not sold, they're just sitting there as, as potential money. They were really high for a while. Now they're much lower. They may bounce back. We expect and hope they will. But what we can buy with them, the prices of those things don't change. And the reason they don't change, uh, or at least change much in a short period of time, is that the asset valuation, the dollar price tag on stocks or mutual funds, that thing we talked about that generates the dollar value of wealth, isn't what affects the price of movie tickets, baseball games, 100% cotton shirts, trips to the doctor, haircuts, etc. <laughs> that is determined by how many pieces of paper, roughly, or how much dollar currency or credit is floating around the economy. And that's those two things are even though they seem related, they are totally different. Right, right. Um, 
if the Federal Reserve consistently prints more money or injects more money into the banking system at a rate faster than we produce stuff through productivity, we're going to have inflation. And the price of the goods and services we enjoy will rise. They still could rise less than the total amount of our income is going up. As long as we're productive, that will that will be the case. And as long as the inflation itself doesn't have a destructive component to our ability to produce stuff, then what we'll see is we'll see prices rising, incomes rising more rapidly as long as we're productive. And that's the way it is. What's happening right now is that the prices of one part of the economy, assets, stocks, remember, they're a funny kind of price. They're not the same thing as the price of shirts and other things. The price of shirts and other things are inherently driven by supply and demand for shirts and underlying all that, the amount of dollars floating around the whole economy. If suddenly people think the future is bleak and corporations are not going to be able to make much profit, the share price, another price, but a different kind of price than shirts, is going to fall. And that is not what we would use in our price index for evaluating what we can buy and sell. It's true we can buy and sell stocks, but usually what we're doing when we talk about a price index is talking about the stuff that we consume. Mm-hmm, you don't mm-hmm. consume a stock. You consume a shirt. Sure. You don't literally consume it in one gulp, but you do wear it and wear it out eventually. And those are the things that we put into the price index to try to figure out if we're catching up or falling behind when we want to put things in us, use the same yardstick or measuring stick. Right. Now, now I thought you were going to say something a little different, which is that um, in this uh, regime that we're in now, demand has fallen, even for those basic goods and services that you just described, even food, supposedly, according to some numbers I've been looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet prices have remained um, stable. And so demand hasn't, uh, uh, loss of demand hasn't caused prices to to drop, uh, to, to, to fit. And the reason I thought you might say there is that is psychology, essentially, that there's, there's something in us that resists, um, deeply discounting things that, uh, resists, uh, lowering our, our wages or taking a pay cut or, or charging less for something that we've charged a certain amount for, for, for a long that time. That plays a role, but that's not yeah. the central. I don't think that's central. Uh-huh. Let, let's try to talk about disentangling those those two effects, the psychological effect and the supply and demand effect. Yeah. It it's true that that the demand for cars say is way down. Uh and that's led to lower prices of cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not lower prices of everything. Right. Because people aren't lowering their demand for everything. People say, well consumption's collapsed. Well, it's not like we're saving ninety percent of our money. We've just not buying quite as much as we did before and it's very concentrated in high ticket items. Right, high-end electronics, automobiles, uh, etc. So the demand for cars is down. People are cautious and they're a little bit scared, so they're keeping the car that they might normally have have uh, traded in. So what happens out in the real world? What happens out in the real world is that there's a lot of inventory now on the part of car makers that they didn't expect to have, and now they have a choice. They can either try to discount those cars to move move them off the lot because they're costly. They have a lot of money tied up in them. And they do that. They have special promotions and other things. But it doesn't fall that far because if it fell a little more, people would start buying them again, which is okay, but they don't want to lose money on them, right? So there's a certain, it's not like it's going to go to zero when demand goes down. It's just going to fall some. Mm -hmm. Same with food. Yeah, there's a little bit of a decrease in demand for food. Certainly, my guess is high-end restaurants are struggling. Starbucks is probably struggling. People are, you know, eating more at home. 
what does that do? Well, some restaurants will lower their prices, but if they lower them too much, they're going to go out of business. Yeah. They don't just, it, it, you know, they can lower them temporarily. They can have a Wednesday night special or a Monday night special. But after a while, they can't cover their costs, and that puts a natural uh, lower bound on how far prices can fall in the absence of other changes. So what you instead see, the way that the market responds to, say, a decrease in uh, restaurant demand, is especially at the high end, is at first you see a, a decrease in price, like you suggest, but after a while you see fewer restaurants. You see resources leaving the high-end restaurant business and flowing into other things, and the longer this recession lasts, the sadder those uh, out-of-business signs are going to be. Things that we've luxuries and pleasurable treats, and things we've enjoyed, innovation, and, and say in the entertainment world with the devices and gadgets we like, uh, they're going to be harder and harder for people to to sell if if our economy continues to slump because people will turn to the basics. So we'll see a Kindle 2, but we might not see a Kindle 3 if the economy is stagnant for, for anything close to Japan's, meaning five or ten years. I hope not. If it's a six-month slump, well, that'll be fine. But if it's a ten-year slump, you might not see Starbucks anymore. And those coffee lovers who become attached to their high-quality, high-priced Starbucks are going to find they won't be able to get those anymore. Okay, so so to back up to, to first principles here, uh, we're, we're inquiring really uh, why why the value of certain things remains higher relative to those things we need to purchase them, uh, and, and thus uh, our wealth declines. And the reason the value of certain things remains high, even when the system as a whole is slowing down, demand is going down, is that, well, demand for certain things remains high, or supply becomes limited. Well, that and also the fact that... you. You see the things, you notice the things where where demand goes down. You don't notice things where demand goes up. Uh-huh. So, for example, high-end restaurant meals might get cheaper mm-hmm. if the demand falls for a while. But rice might get more expensive because people are turning to staple items uh-huh. as a way to save uh-huh. money. Uh-huh. Uh, you may have noticed uh, uh, Walmart's done okay so far in this recession. A little They've better, done yeah. surprisingly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Neiman Marcus and, and Nordstrom's, I bet, aren't doing so well. So Nordstrom's has put more stuff on sale and eventually might have to close some stores in, in markets where it's profit, those profitability, the profitability of those stores is, is closer to the margin, to the edge. But it could be that a lot of uh, other places are going to thrive. So it could be, for example, high-end meals, out, eating out high-end meals will go down, but maybe McDonald's will do very well. Or maybe it'll all substitute towards eating at home, in which case people will increase their demand for raw food. So it's the money supply which is driving the overall level of prices. Within any one market, supply and demand are doing their thing and creating relative price changes. But the reason that not everything gets cheaper when people are poorer is that if the Federal Reserve is still printing money, that's going to support the money price level of lots of goods. And you think even now when supposedly money is locked up, it's not being loaned uh, like it used to be, people aren't spending it as freely as they used to, you're saying the money supply has remained high or or has gotten higher? Well, it's a tricky thing, right? It's a very complicated thing. The, The money supply is measured. There's all kinds of different measures of the money supply. Uh, the Federal Reserve has injected uh, billions of dollars into banks, but it hasn't ended up into your pocket or exactly. mine. Exactly. It's not really circulating out there, is it's it? It's not circulating. Yeah. The other thing that's happened is a complicated thing called velocity, 
which is the rate at which a dollar gets spent in mm-hmm. a given time period. So mm-hmm. you and I might hold, in good times, we're going to spend a little more freely and a dollar is going to turn over more times during the year. Now we're more cautious. We're, more, we're going to hold maybe more money in our wallet than we normally would or we did a year ago. And that will offset the expansionary effect of the Fed because we are spending less quickly per any time period. Right. So. But when things start to get healthier again, the dollars that the Fed has uh, essentially printed up are going to start circulating again more rapidly, and the Fed will face the challenge of a very swiftly rising price level. Right, right. And there will be a political challenge for the Fed as to what to do about that. Bring uh, back Paul Volcker. Uh, well, Paul Volcker <laughs> said we got to stop it. <laughs> Ben Bernanke is going to have trouble having the political will to stop it if it's at the beginning of a, of a recovery we've been waiting for. Right, right. But 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 that's a future scenario. Uh, meanwhile, um, I just want to clarify that we're talking about why in, in the midst of a recession. Uh, why don't prices come down? Yeah. Why don't prices come down? You said it has to do with money supply, but but you admit that that money supply right now, in terms of real velocity, real turnover, is down. Um, well, no. Again, it's it's a relative amount. There's plenty of money running around the economy, and it's actually increasing at a frighteningly fast clip that normally would cause a great deal of inflation, right. even in a recession. Right. But the reason it's not is that the banks are sitting on it. Uh-huh. Uh, but the recession itself doesn't drive prices down because we're still spending a great deal of money, and we still have lots of people employed. You know, if, God forbid, we had 50% unemployment, maybe we'd see real deflation uh, of a serious kind. Yeah, but the Fed is obsessed with avoiding deflation. Whether that's correct or not, I don't know, but it is, it's an interesting question. As a result, they're, very, they're always in, injecting and pushing money into the economy if there's any we get close to it. In fact, in 2001, when the tech bubble broke and Alan Greenspan was very worried about deflation, that's one of the reasons he lowered the federal funds rate, the overnight interest rate that uh, banks charge each other to such a low level. And... Uh, that was perhaps part of the cause of what the problem we're in now, but he was worried about a different problem then, and as a result, we have a different problem now. Um, so, so to to relentlessly um, return to my original question, yeah, yeah. the um, which I thought was I agree with. You. I don't we, we left a little piece of it unanswered. Yeah, the, uh, the, the how total wealth can increase or decrease, and I mean in the absence of big changes in those fundamental productivity factors we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. That is technology, right? and uh, knowledge and competition. In the absence of some change in those absolute enabling um, elements, um, how does aggregate wealth increase or decrease? The question was um, raised, I think, at a, in a way that will resonate with a lot of people in an article uh, in uh, the Atlantic Monthly in uh, mid-March by a guy named Rob Atkinson, who's president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, in which he argued that uh, wealth hasn't diminished in fact, when um, home values go down, that's just more wealth in the hands of potential home buyers. So it's a transfer of wealth, not a decrease in wealth. And I, 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 I'm going to anticipate your answer. Well, he's not; he's really not um, defining wealth the way the way we are in our conversation. That is, well, it's worse than that. It's um, worse than that. Yeah, I mean that that's part of the that's one reason that it differs from what we said. Uh-huh. So the other is a confusion between prices. And, I mean, by the way, Robert, this is so interesting because these, these are, 
I think you started our conversation saying, I'm going to ask you some dumb questions. I'm uninformed. Every word. These are really quite deep and fundamental questions about how to think clearly about what are quite complicated um, concepts. So I, I think it's extremely interesting. Um, let's talk about one house to try to make it a little more accessible. Okay. Um, I own a house. Uh, I, let's say I paid uh, $250,000 for it, and a few years go by, and it's now appears to be worth 500000 Am I wealthier? Well, you know, I'm going to hesitate to answer that because I'm still in the middle on this question of what's real wealth, what's potential wealth, and what's um, fake wealth. Um, and if that house doesn't remain at that level until you cash out, um, then you aren't wealthier. If- well, that's why we would say more very carefully. I'm wealthier on paper. Right. Exactly. That would be the, 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 the phrasing we would use. Yes. So, and many people would say, you are wealthier. In fact, a bank would say it because a bank in the past would have lent you money based on that higher um, value of the house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, um, is the house any bigger? No. No. Is it any more pleasant? No. In fact, if anything, it's smaller in the sense that it's probably worn out a little bit. Mm-hmm. I haven't painted it, or it's you know the technical term it's depreciated. Mm-hmm. In the absence of maintenance, um, it's actually going to be worth less and less because it will require repair to make it livable at some point. So the correct, if I were to really do it correctly, I'd have to take that into account. We're going to put that to the side, but that's an interesting way to make it clear that in, in some dimension, there's no more stuff. There's right. no more stuff. We're not more productive. The house is still there. It's the same house. So it's not twice as nice when it went from 250 to 500. It's just twice as valuable. Exactly. Now, valuable counts a lot when we're trying to figure out wealth. So it, it, the fact that it's the same house, to say um, semantically, well, you're not any wealthier because you're living in the house that hasn't changed. If anything, it's gotten a little more thread, threadbare, a little more worn. And I think that's one perspective. That's one way of saying it's only on paper, right? Right. But clearly, if I do go sell it, I have $500,000. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I am wealthier. Mm-hmm. Now, if I don't sell it, um, I'm only wealthier on paper. Exactly. And we understand that it could revert back to 250 when I actually get time to, to move, in which case my wealth went up and then it went down. <laughs> so when we're in the middle of that, and it goes from 250 to 500, is it premature to say that I'm wealthier? And is there an offsetting effect I'd want to take into account? Now, the offsetting effect, which the that Rob Atkinson is right about is that it's not for calculating wealth; it's for calculating well-being. Now, when my house goes from two hundred and fifty to five hundred in its market value, I cheer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who wants to buy my house cries. Yes. So that's true. There is an offsetting effect in the sense that, in general, increasing housing prices are good for homeowners and bad for would-be homeowners, and falling house prices are bad for homeowners and good for would-be homeowners. So in that sense, there is a sort of canceling in the, in the welfare effects, in the social uh, well-being, uh, as prices move around. Right. But you would not want to argue that as um, we have gotten wealthier as a nation and the price of houses have risen over time in real terms, corrected for inflation, that somehow that is offsetting our gains. In fact, it's the well-being of people who would own houses that are partly of what's what's driving their prices up. How so? 
Well, because if a lot of people want to live in Washington, D.C. or San Francisco or Boston, uh, it's their ability to do so that causes the price to be 500000 instead of 255 or 10 years ago. I see what you're saying. And as a result, to suggest that somehow when the prices are rising, that the people who want to buy houses are losing out mm-hmm. is kind of missing mm-hmm. the underlying causal relationship. Mm-hmm. And conversely, to say that when the prices are falling... Falling, that therefore, the good news, it just cancels out because the people who want to buy houses, the reason they're falling... Yeah. It's because the people who want to buy them are poorer than they used to be. Right. Or, there, there's a second reason, this is why it's complicated, the expectations about the value of the asset in the future have changed. Right. So let's get away from houses that we live in, and let's talk about stock prices and stock market wealth. Can we do that? Sure. In the stock market, when the stock market goes down and trillions of dollars have been destroyed as the stock market has plummeted, well... It, it's similar in the in the as a as a uh, fallacy because factories weren't destroyed. It's not like a war. Exactly. Uh, a bunch of pieces of paper that we thought were worth a lot now aren't worth as much. In particular, things that were backed by mortgages. Well, we're not inherently uh, worse off from that change. It says that our expectations about the future were overstated. The amount of money we thought we were going to collect from those assets was too high. Right. Or, in the case of a, just a normal stock that goes up and then comes down, the world has changed its assessment of what the future holds for that company. So to say we're poorer because of that says, well, we were artificially rich before. Exactly. And now the marketplace has reassessed the value of that company in the future, the expected value of the cash flow coming from its business activities. And as a result, we've become more realistic about what what is going to come, uh, what's going to happen. So to say that the wealth has been destroyed is really an inaccurate way to describe it. The correct way to describe it is there's been a reassessment of reality, and it turns out we were overly optimistic. So you don't want to say going from overly optimistic to realistic means you're a pessimist. <laughs> right, right. So I think that's the nature of the semantic distinction. So similarly, when we find out that our housing stock has been overvalued over the last 10 years, which it surely has been, uh, or appears to have been, either because of speculation or bad public policy or whatever it is, and we've now readjusted, um, you know, that doesn't mean we're poorer as a nation. However, individuals are poor. People who had the $500,000 house that's now back down to two fifty dollars have taken a loss on paper, and certainly some have taken a real loss because they've gone and resold. You're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and today I'm airing an interview with the economist Russ Roberts. We were talking about the subject of wealth, and in this final part of our conversation, we moved on to the status of economics as a field. Just what kind of science is it? Is it a science at all? Stay tuned. You have a podcast called Econ Talk, a very interesting podcast. And one of the things I really enjoy about it is that um, whatever your your actual orientation as an economist, uh, um, as a free market type economist, I guess, um, you're, you, there's a genuine spirit of sort of questioning and inquiry in, in, the, in the podcast. You're not out to just flog one point of view all the time. Um, and uh, there was one you had fairly recently in which you really, <laughs> you know, did a little soul searching about, about the value and uh, – and function of economics. Um, mm-hmm. You said, um, and I'm just going to paraphrase here, I, I think what's needed to get the economy going again is trust, a sense of optimism. I don't think economy has much to say about how to create trust or optimism. 
But in a general sense, I'm coming to believe that what economics is good for, besides preventing really dumb decisions and bad policies, is providing a language and a framework for thinking about complex matters in an organized and potentially rigorous way and to organize our thinking and dealing with these issues. But as a science, it's kind of coming up short for me these days. Mm -hmm. And we should mention that uh, before you you summed up in that way, you you had um, engaged in a long monologue about your observation that empirical studies, actual evidence from studies of economics, seem to seldom change the views of, of economists. They yeah. they could either discount studies if they conflicted with their basic uh, economic ideology, or they could cite studies whenever they please to support any ideology. Mm-hmm. So how are you thinking about that these days? Well, I, I think that's an unfortunate truth that we as economists should come to grips with and not oversell what we understand and what we don't understand. Um, and we ought to be honest about what we know and what we don't know. So, for example, right now we're about to spend $787 billion financed by borrowing, and that strikes me as a ghastly error. But a lot of other economists, uh, some with Nobel Prizes, think it really ought to be bigger. Uh, Mm -hmm. So how do you reconcile those two views? Well, if you really push, and I have Nobel laureates on my side too, by the way, uh, saying it's a mistake. So when you see Nobel laureates who are supposed to be scientists, uh, it's called the Nobel Prize in Economic Science, which probably shouldn't be. Uh, maybe it should be called Economic Art or Economic Intuition or Economic Sort of Science. But when you see Nobel Prize winners on each side, you disagreeing about something incredibly fundamental. You have to doubt that it's a scientific dispute and start to wonder whether it's really a philosophical dispute masquerading as a scientific dispute. Yes, both sides can quote some empirical evidence in support of their viewpoint uh, as much as you want, actually. But how come there isn't a consensus on this? How come we don't fully understand it? And I think we have to be honest and say this is something that we don't fully understand. The world's a very complex place. The ability of statistical techniques to tease out causation in such a world is a bit of a mirage. It is what Ed Lemer calls faith-based econometrics or faith-based statistics, not real science. Um, so when I'm confronted with that disagreement, I think what we're really disagreeing about is whether we want to be more like France or less like France. I'm a free market guy. I believe in limited government and more power for the individual. I want to be less like France. I think we're too much like France already. But a lot of people disagree. They think we're not enough like France. We ought to have the bigger safety net. We ought to have more government involvement in the labor market. We ought to have a bigger role for government deciding what our money and resources get spent on. That dispute's a philosophical dispute. There's not a lot of empirical evidence that's going to settle it. And pretending that there is, I think, is to engage in fake science. And um, I think we ought to be realistic about and humble about what we know and don't know. Is economics then always underlain by some ideological predisposition, um, such as your your affection for, for free market uh, dynamics? Well, I think there's an ideological role among a lot of stuff that economists say. It's either lurking in the background and sometimes it's out in front. But I do think there are a lot of things that economists do agree on, and I think we should also, you know, the glass may be half empty but it, or three-quarters empty, but it's not totally empty. I think economics is an incredibly powerful and useful tool for organizing your thinking, and there are a lot of things that economists would agree on. To take an example, our previous discussion about wealth and assets and inflation, economists across the political spectrum would give you presumably almost, if not the same answers to the questions you asked me. Those are not political questions, not ideological questions. They're thinking logic, organizing your thinking about complex things. And economics is very good at that. It's very useful. There are policy issues that most economists agree on. Most economists think it's bad to have price supports for agricultural products. 
They think it's good to have free trade. There's close to unanimity on these things, although there's been some movement toward a more uh, government-oriented approach that's over the last few decades. But overall, most economists still come to a similar answer. And there's lots of agreement on the basic fundamentals that people respond to incentives, that what we forego when we make a decision that there are trade-offs is a crucial part of human life, uh, that the source of our standard of living is our productivity, for example, a topic we talked about earlier. So I think there's a lot of agreement on economics. I think the challenge is politicians and media expect economists to give answers the way engineers give answers about where uh, a bridge is going to have stress or where uh, a moonshot's going to land if we point it out of a certain angle uh, on a on the in the space program. That's not what we're good at, and uh, there are, are unfortunately plenty of economists who purport to tell you what interest rates will be 16 months from now. When I'm asked, I always say I don't know, and that anyone who tells you that they do is a liar. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it's a little bit we're a little bit like meteorologists uh, when we're asked to forecast, but on grasping the complexity of the world and helping us people understand how the world's fundamentally working, I think we have a lot to contribute. Our predictive power into the future is inherently highly limited. And yet, that's what people want from us. That's what people expect from us. We should say, that's not my job. Uh Well, I guess the real real, uh, litmus test as to whether economics is a science or not, at least the kind of economics we're talking about now, is whether um, uh, evidence could ever falsify a theory. That's exactly right. And have you ever had your theoretical beliefs, I'll I'll use the word belief, um, uh, changed by by evidence? No, I don't think so. And I think most economists, if they're honest, will will agree – and the cur- at least about the kind of things we're talking about now, like the st- whether the stimulus is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. People who think the stimulus is a good idea say, World War II is what got us out of the Depression. And it was a stimulus. And, and it was that stimulus, that government spending. Those of us on the other side say, oh, no, 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 no. There wasn't prosperity during World War II. There was only prosperity for military producers and the industries that produced bombs and guns. Sure, they were prosperous, but the rest of us weren't stimulated by that spending. That hurt us. That's my side's response. However, you wouldn't disagree that we came out of the Depression after World War II. We did. So, so the question is... So what happened? Oh, I have no problem generating a story. I'm a great storyteller, <laughs> as are all economists, about events that have already happened. <laughs> the secret is to tell the story in advance. Yes, we came out of the, dep- out of the Depression after 15 years, after ni- from 1929 to 1945 or 44, or between 30 and 45, depending on how you want to ca- count the start and the end. But that was because we finally got back to a world where the rules of the game were, were secure, where government didn't intervene erratically and frenetically like it had during the New Deal, et cetera, et cetera. Now, having said all that, I think there are two crucial things to admit. One is we have a depression in the United States once a century. Trying to explain a once-in-a-century event with a theory is a kind of foolish concept. There's a thousand things that have happened during those times, and it's easy ex post after the fact, to generate a story that seems consistent with some of the data. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the problem we're talking about. Um, and the second, I think the second part is the complexity part. But the third part is, and this is very important for all the criticism I've made of economics here, we learned a lot about the Great Depression. We still don't agree on whether it's good for the government to intervene with stimulus. There's still a lot of debate among everyday citizens and among economists But there were a lot of things we did during the Depression that were really stupid, and we shouldn't do them again. And most economists across the spectrum agree that they were mistakes. It was a mistake to pass the Smoot-Hawley tariff 
1930 that put up barriers to imports. At the time, it seemed like a good idea. Almost everyone agrees it helped make the Depression worse. At the time, the Federal Reserve in 1932 contracted the money supply and let it continue to contract and didn't respond. Most economists across the spectrum think that was a bad idea. In the 30s, we tried to cartelize big unions and big labor. We gave them more power through regulation. It helped those unions and those corporations. It didn't help the economy as a whole. Most economists would agree with that. So again, the glass is half full. We understand a lot more about the world around us maybe than we did before, but let's not exaggerate what we understand. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty unique situation that we're in. I hate to say pretty unique. It's unique (laughs) or it's not. It's a unique situation. We had a housing bubble burst in the United States of an unusual magnitude followed by a financial collapse. That's not what happened in 1932, 33, and 29. So all of a sudden, we're in a new situation. We don't have a lot of historical precedents to rely on. We don't have a lot of models that we've tested. And so to expect economics to be able to scientifically capture the current world and predict how to get out of it is it's just inherently a fool's game. And, but that doesn't stop people from playing it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the honesty needs to come in. Not that economics is worthless. It's not worthless. It's very valuable, as we can see in helping us think about the logic of these complex interactions in, any, in, an, economy, in an economy or in a market. But don't expect more from it than it can achieve. And, and of course, uh, economics invariably or, or, or often runs up against psychology where it's really at a loss. Um, you know, you guys are not – neither neither was Freud, let's be fair. Uh, you know, you guys don't totally have a, a handle on the human psyche. Right, and that's exactly what we were talking about before, that I think the fundamental underlying part of this mess is psychological – and economics has virtually nothing to say about what creates investor confidence. It will come back. I'm pretty confident about that. <laughs> when and why, I don't really understand. And mm-hmm. I don't think any economist does. Mm-hmm. And as you say, most psychologists don't either. So That's it's right. Not, nothing really to be ashamed of. <laughs> I've been speaking with Russ Roberts, professor of economics at George Mason University. His most recent book is The Price of Everything, and his regular podcast is called Econ Talk.